Welcome to episode 99 of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Anne Lepore. Uh, the episode is a, a little longer than usual because Anne is a fantastic storyteller. And we were having such an amazing conversation that I completely lost track of the time, which is something I usually do. I usually do a little timekeeping while I'm recording, so I, I make sure that I get to all the things I want to get to. But um, I do have a, a few announcements. These are from some upcoming guests, and because their episodes won't be out in time, I told them I would make these announcements. The first one is from Liz Zito, whose name you might recognize from previous episodes because Liz is the person who helps me, who coordinates, who facilitates me being able to have this show recorded at the School of Visual Arts. Liz will be reading from her project, Muller Report Fan Fiction with Liz Zito. Uh, she will be performing that on September 7th at 7.30 p.m. at the Wilbury Theater in Rhode Island. Uh, the best way to buy tickets for that and to find out more about that is to go to her Instagram page, which is her name backwards. It's otiz.zil, O-T-I-Z dot Z-I-L. Uh, and she has a, a link there in her bio. And we talk uh, we, we talk a lot about this project on her episode, but you could go see it live before the show comes out. I think the best, quickest way to describe it would be it's the actual report, but where there are redactions, Liz has filled in those spaces with these detective novel, noir-style stories and descriptions about Robert Mueller and other things. And it's... It's a great way to disseminate the report because it, it is actually the report, but the, it allows you some space for some humor and for some entertainment, and it's just fantastic. So check that out if you can, and then you can listen to our episode where we talk about it. The second announcement from some upcoming guests uh, are from Kuzma Vostrikov and Ajwan Song, who I just recorded with. So that episode is a little further away, but they've been doing this series called Absolutely Augmented Reality, which is getting a lot of airtime. Uh, and they will be showing that work at Portal on Governor's Island, which used to be known as the Governor's Island Art Fair. And that opens on August 31st. Uh, and I think it runs, it runs through September 29th. So check that out, and then uh, their episode will be out. They also will have, I think, even a, a larger show coming up of that work in November, and I'll announce that uh, before that comes out. So now to our current guest, Anne Lepore. I have a few announcements as well. Uh, first, uh, an old announcement, actually. <laughs> Anne showed her animation work, Synesthesia, back in June in Rome as part of the Organization for Human Brain Mapping's annual conference. And you can see some of that work on her website, annelepore.com, and that will be linked to the show. And that work is traveling to Moscow, where it will be part of the International Association of Synesthetes, Synesthetes, I can't say it, <laughs> Artists and Scientists. Uh, they have invited her to screen two of her animations at the Moscow State Tchaikovsky Conservatory on October 17th. So if you're in Moscow, check it out. Uh, and she will be delivering a talk on transcribing synesthesia to animation on October 20th at Moscow State University of Psychology and Education, where she will be joined by neurologist Dr. Svetlana Rudenko, Ben Neal, and alumna Gary Hahn, or Jerry Hahn. Uh, and one more, and we'll be showing some of her work on September 9th at Seton Hall's Walsh Gallery. Uh, and I will link to that on the show site as well at realphotoshow.com. All right. So 
Uh, Anne Lepore is a multimedia artist in the most expensive definition of that term. She has made everything from lithographs to holograms, 3D printed amulets to animated sound experiments. She has made objects from street interview requests and most recently performed stand-up storytelling comedy at a comedy club. Uh, then she has a side hustle, consulting people and organizations on how to use tools and technology to their advantage, which she presented to the hosts of Shark Tank on Good Morning America, uh, to which she had a very positive response. Uh, Anne is a fantastic storyteller, and we cover many of her fascinating projects and experiences in this episode, including acquiring lantern slides from the Metropolitan, which led to an interesting find and an entire project, actually. Uh, from her bio... Anne Lepore was raised in the garage under her father's car and continued tinkering with analog video and kinetics in western New York and later with computer-driven electronics and animation in New York City. A new Leonardo artist and Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation grant recipient, Anne has exhibited at events such as Digital Salon, the Free Biennial, and La Superette in New York City and internationally. She has completed residencies at Engine 27 Soundspace, the Taliesin Artist Residency Program, and was awarded a year-long studio residency at Gallery of Faro in Newark. The images and installations she creates as a result of her tinkering are heavily influenced by her experiences not just as an artist, but as a member of several communities that are defined by the physical assertions and limitations of a very specific environment. Anne received her BFA from Alfred University and her MFA from the School of Visual Arts. She is currently Associate Professor of 3D Design and Animation at Ramapo College of New Jersey. And this is a, a fun conversation because I've known Anne for quite a while, uh, probably since about 2004. And uh, it was great catching up. And like I said, she tells a lot of great stories. So thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. this becomes like the storage like where are we putting that i don't know Put it in yeah the that's not bad uh can i should i can you turn off the fan yep and i'll turn off the air conditioner yes okay. all right i'm set okay great yeah can you hear yourself yes okay. yes i can <laughs> well thank you for inviting me into your home today yeah <laughs> welcome welcome to the woods i know mawa new jersey right <laughs> so how far are we from ramapo we are... Rompo College. Or is it university now? It's still a college. Okay. And, uh, you know, we keep our rankings that way. Uh, if we were a university, we'd be like low on the list of universities. But is that of, right? But we're high on the list of colleges. I don't know if that's actually correct. But, oh, okay. But that's my... That's what I always <laughs> that's imagine. That's right. That's like, what, why are you it's not a political a, move. Why are you not a university? Because we're the best college. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're like three... Miles. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, it, my commute went from, from when I was in Jersey City, my commute was like an hour, an hour and a 15 minutes. And now it's like seven minutes unless I hit the traffic light. Oh. And that's the, 10 the. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> the one, the one light. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, for all the time I taught at Ramapo, uh, when I was also living in Jersey City, I, I had really never figured out the area 
too well. It's it hard just to come tell. Come to teach and go home. And, yeah, yeah, you you see the college and you see Route 17, and then you don't really know what right. else is around. There's a fancy neighborhood of like really giant houses, mm-hmm. uh, and I had driven past that, and so I just thought that that was the town. And <laughs> and when we were looking for a, a place to live outside of Jersey City, my father said, you know. I have a friend in in uh, Mawa, and he says the taxes are really low. And I was like Mawa, and I and I took him on a tour of that neighborhood with the crazy like giant. You know, they look like castles. Yes. He has their own castle, and I was like, I can't live in this town. <laughs> and then I he gave me his friend's address, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is also the town. There's this whole other right part. It's kind of like I, Montclair. Montclair has mm-hmm. yeah, all different the mountain areas. houses. Yes, right, exactly. So. <laughs> So we found our little spot and I had some fears about moving to the suburbs because we did too. Yeah. Everybody in Jersey city was like, Oh, you can't, you know, suburbs, they're mean. You'll be isolated. You can't make friends. Everybody's really petty. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, it turned out to not be the case. No, it's it's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you, and, and we like that we're kind of like in the woods and the kids are like, Lily, Lily used to say when she was eating her breakfast in the morning, "Mommy, a horse," and so like that's a deer. <laughs> and then you'd and then you'd be like, City "Oh wait, kids. that's that's ten deer. Like there's right. a family of ten, and they're all on our tiny lawn uh-huh. eating the whatever the rose bush or something." Yeah, you're definitely more out in the uh, woodsy area than we are in mm-hmm. Rutherford. Rutherford is still fairly in between uh, suburban urban. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it's yeah. it's. See, I think there's two kinds of suburbs, right? There's um, there's the suburbs that were built post World War II, and the suburbs that were bedroom communities for cities. Have you heard the term exurb? No. So I had to fill out a survey. I don't. What was the survey for? But one of the options was exurb, and I was like, "What's an exurb?" So I looked it up, and it's like Northern Bergen County, right? Like it's like a super wealthy, ver- you know, but but linked to a, a major metropolitan mm. area, but th- but it had all these sort of specific things about it. And I thought, oh, exurb, maybe that's, is that where we are? Are we yeah. exurb, <laughs> an exurb? Outer, yeah. outer suburbs, exurbs? Yeah. Yeah, so how long have you been at Ramapo now? 15 years. Yeah, so. That's a long, well, <laughs> that's a long time. Because I've, I've been at Mercer for about four, for a little over 14 years, going on my 15th year. Okay. So where did I meet you? Did I meet you in Jersey City or did I meet you at Ramapo? I think I met you in Jersey... I probably met you in I, Jersey City then. Yes, but you were adjuncting at Ramapo. I was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I probably saw you in both places. That's right. Yeah. At least for my like first year there. Oh, yeah. oh you know what? Your first year, my last year. 2003? 2004. 2003, okay. 2004. Academic... No, this is yeah. getting really pedantic, but yes... <laughs> Everybody wants to know what year exactly. Right. <laughs> Fans want to know. That's right. Is it the real photo show? What year exactly? So yeah, my last <laughs> academic year at Ramapo was your first year academic year. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when when you were there, was there um, a 3D design and animation program or did no, you create that? I started it. You did. What, yeah. So when you were teaching there, what were you teaching? As an uh, adjunct, as an adjunct, I was teaching video art. I taught in the also in communications. It was sort of like 
whatever whatever they needed. Yeah. Quick, Anne, do this <laughs> thing over here. Okay, I can do that. I can do this other thing too. Uh, so it's. I think most artists learn to uh, be super flexible with all sorts of job prospects. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody says, can you teach web design? You're like, <laughs> yes, of course I can. Am I a web designer? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not. Yes, I but can I, learn that. But I can, I can learn you know, that but this summer. <laughs> I, if it's a 200 level course, yes, you, I can manage that absolutely, as right. long as it's not the uh, the capstone or something. <laughs> so, th- but that's I think most things that I've learned in my life have been, you know, out of necessity. There's oh, a, oh absolutely. You, oh, I have to, you know, I I was 17 and I bought a car from some nuns and I had to learn like what to, all right, I got, now I got to change the oil and now I got to bleed the brakes and I'm going to figure out how to do that stuff. Was that your I was, first car? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Why nuns? The price was right and I was hanging out with a bunch of nuns <laughs> at the time. Were you I would in, take them tubing and stuff. My, my were mother- you in Catholic school? No, but my mother taught at a Catholic school in oh. Troy. So there were always nuns around, and you would be surprised. Nuns, Catholic nuns, can be really radical. I wouldn't be surprised. People, yeah, and and <laughs> and pretty cool, pretty fun to. I think our our first outing, our first outing, we took them to see the Crying Game, mm-hmm. and Sister Beatrice was, you know, at the end of the movie. I knew that. I knew, I knew all along. Yeah, you know, I was like, wow, awesome. <laughs> these ladies are cool. Nuns uh, lead the progressiveness typically. In the Catholic institutions, yeah, they should be priests. I mean, yeah. let's face it; they yeah, know exactly. they know what's going on, and they're invested in a maybe a different way than uh, yes than the than the priests are. So mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they're the they're the community glue. They're right. ho- they're holding everything together, and uh, and these were you know these la- ladies were progressive enough that uh, they weren't the they weren't the old school beat their students with a ruler nuns. No, so it was all I right. Don't- not sure that exists anymore. Yeah. Well, my parents would tell you. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, sure they, they do. They had their share of beatings. <laughs> yes. I think, the... I think everyone who went to school in the 60s has those stories. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then when did, it, when did the program then transition into the 3D an- design and animation? 2007 or 8. It, and it was basically there was a, they created a, a position. So there was a, a, a call and they interviewed Oh my gosh. I mean, it was kind of intimidating because one of my former professors at SVA called me to say like, I know you work at Ramapo College. And he said, and I'm going to be the new animation professor there. Oh, What can you tell me about the program? So, you know, he was this person who I really respected. And so I, I told him everything I could tell him, but I didn't tell him I was also applying for it. <laughs> oh, he was calling for the position. Yeah. And he just oh, looking I think for he some ass- inside information. I, yeah, and I think he maybe I don't know why he phrased it that way. Maybe he just assumed that he was going to get it or uh-huh. that's, or he thought he'd get more information if he said, I'm going to be the new person See, I, there. It was like just I I'd thought, never been in a right, situation I, I like thought, that. I thought he was saying I'm. I'm being hired as like a dean or coordinator or something like that. Or no, coming, it was just this one. Be coming in and there would still be this position. He he was telling you that he was getting that position that was yes. open. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. It was a, a, a tenure track line. They yeah. wanted, you know, somebody for <laughs> for electronic art and animation. And, yeah. And uh, he called and he said, I'm going to I'm going to be this person. So what can you tell me about? So I was like, and I knew, you know. 
Like I knew and they hadn't you, made a decision yet. So. Did you think that? Did you believe him at the time? That no. Oh, I, oh. Well, I knew I knew there was some some level of bravado there because I knew they hadn't made a decision. Yeah, that's... because I was all you know was also uh, interviewing for the position. Yeah. So, that, so it was one of wow. those funny things where I was like. Oh, I admire you so much. And also, what? <laughs> yeah. Maybe I don't admire you as much. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think um, there's so many ways to play your own confidence about things. And I guess I would have never made a call like that. I mean, no, I, I don't imagine. have the. Yeah. I don't. I'm confident in many ways, but I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have the guts to sort of like. That's a real fake it till you make it. Yes. <laughs> kind of approach. <laughs> right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it was very interesting. I was also applying at a bunch of other southeastern Louisiana state mm-hmm. and, you know, a uh, uh, college in you Maryland. You applied at Mercer. And Mercer. Right? On my recommendation. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know. And uh, you're lucky in some ways that <laughs> that didn't work out, that position. Uh. Well, it was really, I, I, I felt like I knew, I knew Ramapo, I knew mm-hmm. the students. You know, there's a huge advantage to adjuncting someplace first where you really know, you know, the department politics, you know, the, the yeah. students and you have a, a pretty good sense of what the needs are. Oh, so absolutely. I'm sure that yeah. was, I'm sure I had an advantage because I was an adjunct first and I knew a little bit more about the program. But it, it also depends on the the institution. There's a lot of places that don't like to hire from the their own adjuncts, that don't like to hire from the inside. And, and I would say, usually we are that institution. Mm. Usually, uh, I think it's people take, take their own adjuncts for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, oh, we already have access to this person. Why would we yeah, yeah. spend this position on them? So I was, you know, I was really happy. I felt like, uh, especially because, you know, I was competing against a, a mentor. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I, I'm doing I'm doing it. I'm doing the things that I want to be doing at a level that I want to be doing them at. So that was, yeah, that was a type of confirmation of, of my achievements. Right. Was, was to be able to land this, uh, this position. SVA is where you got your master's degree, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah and I would hang out sometimes in the photo department because <laughs> there was some good art stuff going on over there, <laughs> even though I was in uh, uh, the, co- the uh, computer art department, which is just like a terrible name. For was anything. that in the main building on 23rd? Where were you? I was on 21st, West 21st Street. Oh, you're on the West side. Yeah. 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 We didn't have a West side when I went to SVA. <laughs> oh, oh. So that I, was. A, oh, no, oh. we had a sculpture. Uh, we had sculpture on the west side, but that, I think that was it Where at was the time. Where was sculpture? Sculpture was way downtown somewhere, so I thought. So s- sculpture, no, uh, originally sculpture was in an old warehouse building, and so I might have this a little wrong, but I think it was like 17th on the west side. Okay. And it was this big old, what probably used to be like uh, an auto repair building, you know, with like the car Fix elevators. Yeah, place. No, just a whole, bit, like one of those giant uh, car repair buildings. Yeah, nice. yeah, but... But uh, it was, it was uh, yeah, I remember it being this really rough and raw kind of space with welding and all kinds of things going on. And then they moved it, yeah. And then SVA just blew up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, had a lot of, they had a lot of real estate. Mm-hmm. Although it's, it was so funny to be, to go to an undergraduate institution that's out in the country and has as much space as you can imagine, mm-hmm. right? Space is not at a premium. And then to come to a place that everything's, you know, it's Manhattan, so everything's vertically stacked. And yes. <laughs> when you sit at a computer workstation, you're touching elbows with the person <laughs> next to you. And it's a different level of like scheduling and intimacy. And I remember there was something that would happen in that program all the time where, 
you would sign out your computer in block <laughs> in three hour blocks because mm. this was the year. The year I started at SVA was the year that you could you had to do 3D computer graphics on an SGI machine. Oh wow. Silicon graphics. Silicon machine. graphics, yeah. And they were these like big purple boxes yeah. that cost as much as an automobile. They did. They're yeah. really expensive. And so there was no like, oh I have the software on my laptop. There was none that just was not a thing. And then the next year it was, right? Like that's <laughs> yes. how fast things moved. So in my first year, it was you have to sign out your you get your three hours twice a week. Oh my God. Yeah. And that three hours was so precious. And there'd always be somebody who would burst into the room and be like, I have an emergency. I need that <laughs> I need it, right. workstation. And I was coached by this by a, a another student, a colleague of mine, and she was like, never give up your workstation <laughs> for anything, no matter how desperate the person seems. And I was like, really? really? That guy's crying over there. <laughs> Maybe I should give up my workstation. <laughs> she was like, no, never. She's like, this is the only way you're going to make it. Never give up your oh, workstation. Wow. <laughs> so I learned, I toughened up a little bit. Yeah, well, you were, you were coming from a uh, quiet, dark and cold Alfred, uh, right? <laughs> yes, I was coming from a... Uh, a, a cold, always winter type yeah. of place <laughs> where, where yeah, these stu- you know, you'd hang out in the studio and you wouldn't, you didn't need to like leave the studio to go to a party. You'd just send someone to bring like beer back to the studio <laughs> and that was the party, you know, that was, we took our work very seriously. Yeah. So that was video yeah. and printmaking that w- at Alfred University. Yes. That was your BFA. Mm-hmm. And then you got computer art really at the cusp of computer art in some yeah. ways, right? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's always new media, new tools. Yeah. Artists are always developing new tools, so that's mm-hmm. there's never going to not be new tools. But that was a jump because I remember in in the 90s, you know, we were still drawing with things that looked like Microsoft Paint, you know, <laughs> in neon colors, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it, it really jumped to the Silicon, Silicon Graphics workstations. And then from there, you know, Apple really kind of took over after that. Sure. I think, I mean, Photoshop came out in 93 or 94, mm-hmm. the first version of Photoshop. Yeah. That was it. Oh, yeah. 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 And digital video editing wasn't happening mm-hmm. until 99, 98 or 99. You know, it was this funny timeline. And I, um, I got to be at all those places as they were sort of turning over from you know, flying eraser heads yeah. <laughs> for editing um, versus, oh, and and reel to reel. Oh, wow. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and doing audio on like a four track. <laughs> that was that was something that was also happening at my undergrad institution. And then it was like, then I graduated. And then like two years later, it was like, oh, there might be software for this now. Yeah. It's really Amazing. Yeah, we were still using VHSC when I took video art at uh, wow. SVA. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Not even the little uh, what was the smaller format called? Oh, I think that was at VHSC. Wasn't C it? was the little guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was the the smaller VHS. Pre digital. They were still analog. Yeah, there were still small. beta yeah. beta players and recorders at the mm-hmm. school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Betamax formats. So, so let's jump ahead. <laughs> When I was here, we didn't right. have know. digital tools. There were no pixels. Well, you know, that's how this conversation started, how we had to teach ourselves so many things. I didn't, I never learned digital photography at all. And that's the bulk of what I teach now. Right. So, you know, there's always a steep learning curve in the technical arts. And you, and it's it's a lot to keep up with. And you're in it even more than I am with what you need to keep up with. Yeah, my stuff changes every year, really. Mm. 
the technical the technical end changes every year but it's sort of good because I have I have students who graduate and then they come back and they audit a class with me like on a schedule almost like every three years they come back because they want a quick brush up on what's changed what's new you Mm -hmm. know what are the new ways of doing things and um, it's cool I'm never bored I'm always on my toes there's always something new to learn and their suggestions make you learn their questions make you learn absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. how do I do this how do I sync you know I want this particle explosion to completely be synced up with the beats of my you know (laughs) (laughs) dubstep my (laughs) you're like you're like huh should you really is that a good artistic choice and you're like no I will answer your question I'll answer your question first and then I will and then we'll talk about, you know, artistic choices. Right. How did you, when you were uh, putting together your program then? Because it sounds like you got hired and you had a lot of freedom to make your program. Yes. And I, and one of the things that I really wanted to do was instead of focusing only on 3D computer animation, which would be easy to focus on because you can go into insane amounts of depth. I also wanted to bring in physical computing Uh, mostly because that was another part of my experience in grad school. Mm. And it was something that in my, at SVA, nobody was combining those two things. So Mm -hmm. it was, are you going to screen an an animation that is character-based and designed for a very specific type of festival circuit? Or are you going to make an object, an Mm. interactive object for a gallery? Huh. And I was like, why not do both? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> why would why would why I have to choose? choose? Right. Right. My mom was trying to remind me of something. She was like, Oh my God, why are you doing so many things? She's talking about my current life now. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I just it, I fell into it this year. She's like, Ugh, this year? <laughs> no way. She was like, In high school, you were on the ski team and the <laughs> art club and the other club and the debate and the philosophy. She was like, You are always involved in too many things. I was like, why should I say no if yeah. it sounds interesting? Mm-hmm. And but you that's can also, manage it. Yeah. That's also how you get pulled onto like a bunch of committees. Oh, so you, control, you don't have to tell me that. Yeah, <laughs> to control that a little bit. My first, you know, twelve years, I was at Mercer. I was typically only one of three male faculty to show up at all the meetings and all the committees. It's almost it was almost all female faculty all the time mm. that would volunteer is for things. Is it our hormones that make us do it, I do you think? I don't know. Estrogen is like, take care of the people. But it was really obvious. You know, <laughs> oh. like, there were three guys. But I don't, mm. you know, who Thank you for did. being one of those guys. <laughs> yes. I appreciate that. Thank My, you. I had a colleague who used to call me helium hand. Because I, you'd I'd, raise your yeah, hand for I'd everything. Yeah, I'd always be raising my hand, Ooh. right, to volunteer for things. Yeah, it's you know, uh, an institution needs a certain percentage of people to be that involved. Yeah, absolutely. Because if everybody checks out and only focuses on their research, then mm-hmm. you lose the sort of rich potential of right. what the un- what the institution is capable of. Yeah, and and I've I've stepped back quite a bit in the last two or three years just because of the running the gallery and everything else that I'm Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So then that idea of not limiting yourself and always being involved in, in multiple aspects and even making a program that lets you be more, uh, let you, you access more tools and create more things and not be limited. I think that's also in uh, um, evident in how you describe your work and write about your work. And, you know, you have this, this, I, this kind of like, here's the work. It could say a number of things. I'm willing to say this, but, you know, I'm not going to just give you all the answers, right? I, I've always had a hard time 
walking the line because I don't want to be, I, I sometimes consider it almost irresponsible to make something and then say, I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. up to, it's up to you. And that coy game, I think, depending on where you are in the marketplace, sometimes you have to be that coy because you don't want to turn off potential buyers. Mm-hmm. But guess who's not, you know, people are not lining up to buy video art. No. So I don't have to be that coy. <laughs> You're not in that game all the time. I'm not in that game all the time. Uh, and I don't have to be that coy. And I also don't want to be irresponsible to viewers who would like to be engaged mm-hmm. with the work. And I want to turn around and say, Ha ha ha! Whatever you think it is is what it is. I, 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 I yeah, I never liked that. That that comes from a modernist tradition of thinking that if you explain it too much, the magic goes away. Right. The the magic should be in sparking something that feels relevant, resonant. Art has different jobs to do at different times. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. So art was once. Uh, you make fancy things for wealthy people and you make sure you make them look good. Right. <laughs> and if there's, you know, three characters in the scene and two of them are babies, they have like weird man faces because yeah. you had to include other patrons and in if, the image. And then if it right? sells, it's wash, rinse and repeat. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And so that, but that's not what, um, that's not the job of art now. The job of art now, I think, is to keep people connected, to keep them engaged, to find a, some roots for keeping culture and sharing and expressing culture to keep those alive. And and it's really hard, I think, for art to do those things if you say, eh, it's whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, my students always want to say, art is in the eye of the beholder. And I, <laughs> no. And I usually whack a table. That's no, right. it is not. I, Beauty, I your aesthetic Oh yes. Personal yes. feelings are right. in the eye of the beholder. And I was like, capital A, art is not how could you right. be so sure? And I was like, listen, I've got to teach you a couple <laughs> things here. So I have a very similar reaction when students start their their critique response sentence with, Well, for me it's it's not just for you. Right. And that's why you would have a critique. You would have a critique well, because you here? wanna know, is it I would like to communicate this. Is anybody getting what I'm trying to communicate? Yes. and Or how are they getting it? Because maybe I'm not see? communicating what I think I'm communicating. Right. And that might be good, too. Sure. What, do, what you know, this is what I'm saying. What are you hearing? I think that's, that's the fear. The fear is that you get called out on something. It ends up not being exactly what you wanted. Or you're just being told, maybe for the first time, you didn't do such a great job. <laughs> yeah. Know? Or you thought it was saying say speaking something i don't know yeah when you're an art when you're an artist for a certain number of years and you have like a consistent practice uh it's totally okay that everything doesn't hit the mark oh it's, it's you know yeah and and students i think also have to know that uh not everything that's in your studio goes to the gallery <laughs> some stuff you never let it out of the studio because it's part of the process and i'm a big fan of uh, you know, I consider myself sci curious and I'm interested in experimentation. And mm-hmm. if you can't experiment, if you always have to know the outcome is going to be certain, you just chopped off a whole potential portion of creative practice. Oh, absolutely. So you have to be willing to fail and fail big and then figure out so, like those, yeah. those failures can be so informative. And absolutely, uh, I've been photographing the Passaic River for three, four years now, maybe four, maybe more, four. 
And I just figured out what I want to do. And probably a thousand images will never see daylight again. <laughs> so what was the change? What was the thing that you were doing before? And what are you doing now? I was doing what I, I do, I think, too much. And that's wander and photograph and wander and photograph, but a, a, along a map, a route. I always map things out and mm -hmm. go photograph them. It it was it wasn't developing into a point like I didn't like it was just a bunch of interesting images that I probably made before uh, repeatedly and uh, I didn't know I I lost track of why I was doing it completely. I'm, I'm more and more as I work and my time is more limited. I'm like no, I want to have a point right now. Oh <laughs> yeah, limited time forces you to make decisions faster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to, and you have to make them. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I ran into you at the um, the Princeton Arts Council, the Arts Council of Princeton, yeah, you were in a show called Reconstructed History with mm -hmm. our good friend Wendell White and Casey Rubel and Annie Hogan. Who else was in it? Leslie Sherrill. Yeah, that was a great show. That was, was an amazing show. It was a, a yeah. But that came out of your work, Forbidden Views, I think? Yes. Oh, that was such an interesting project. I had been learning a projection mapping from an artist named Chica. And then she was involved in, a, in an exhibition at the college. And I invited her to come and give a couple of talks. She was staying with us. And we, we really became friends through this process. And then... Uh, I had told her a story about glass photo slides. Like, oh, I once found this, <laughs> you know, these glass photo slides, but the the antique dealer wanted, you know, $20 for them and I didn't oh, buy yeah. them. Lantern slides, right? Yeah, because, magic lantern slides. Because it was in 1992 and $20 seemed like an exorbitant amount of money yeah. for a shoebox full of old stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I always remembered it, always regretted it. I even went back the next day and somebody else had, grabbed them and uh so she remembered this story and then she said maybe like a, a couple months later she said i'm at the metropolitan museum doing this residency and there's a bunch of these slides here why don't you just come over and play with them so i got permission to go through this archive of them and uh, permission to photograph them and then at the end of my eight-hour day, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to leave the slides. So I said, can I take some with me? <laughs> at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as one does. <laughs> you never know until you ask, yeah. right? And this is my journey from, you know, my work is a lot about who I am now. I ha was once a very shy person and I'm now an extrovert. And if you don't ask, how do you know? So <laughs> the answer was, uh, you know, the person in charge had to go ask a couple other people and there was some paperwork and they were formally deaccessioned to me. I was able to pick out like 25 of them. And, and, but, and well, I, if it's deaccession, like they're out of the collection, right? They're permanently, gone, permanently given to you then given to me. Wow. I'm the new owner. And I was like, I didn't know I could <laughs> do right. that. I'm going to ask for stuff more <laughs> yeah. often. Hey, that's nice. Can I have that? Yes. Right? Because <laughs> the answer might be yes. Everyone should be asking. Yeah. Now, they are not, the slides for the most part, just to be clear, were not, I, I assume they were not being stored as artifacts themselves. They were old documentation. Oh. That's how the museum was documenting their collection. Wow. So these are their earliest, you know, some of their earliest photographic documentation. They made their own lantern slides. They made their oh. own lantern slides. 
but not all of them. <laughs> I found a bunch of slides that were some, and he had written his name on them. Uh, and he'd written do not deaccession. <laughs> it was like really, looked like 1930s handwriting, you know. That's like, right. You agree around. never to deaccess these right. slides. He's, he's not. Who is he? He's not around anymore. Nobody knows who this guy is. <laughs> so, but they were not photographs of the collection. They were photographs of women in the galleries looking at artwork. Oh. They had this very voyeuristic quality to them. All of the ladies were not facing the camera. <laughs> oh, jeez. And they all had like nice ankles. You know? uh -huh. like, they were... Exposed ankles. They had <laughs> attractive, attractive ankle women. <laughs> but none of them were looking at him. And then there was another group of slides that were all uh, Forbidden City. So this is documentation of artworks that, I mean, pieces of architecture, I guess, like stone carvings that were going to be cut away and shipped to the Metropolitan Museum, which when you think about this, it sounds almost criminal, right? Oh, yeah. Like, well, oh, I don't know it, it about that. It hints at the colonial era of stealing arts a little bit, yeah. Yeah, not limited to the actual colonial era. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, in the, 20, in the 20th century. <sighs> uh, and so there's all these images of the Forbidden City, and then there were another group of images of women, um, very well-dressed in traditional costume, but none of them were looking at the camera. They were all facing so far away from the camera that it's very possible that they didn't know their photograph was being taken. Mm. And so I looked and I found the same guy's name on them. And I was like, this guy, what's up with this guy? So I took a bunch of those and some other Im images. Uh, but I kept playing with these images of like, you know, what does it mean to uh, take something without permission? And whether it's an artifact from the Forbidden City, that doesn't mean that they were taking them without permission. Somehow there was some exchange going on, but we don't know who was on the other ex side no, of the exchange. Right. Yeah. May not have been someone from China. It may have been somebody else, another col you know colonialist mm -hmm. person. So the idea of like taking something and then having it for yourself or having it for an institution. And if you don't have clear participation, if you've stolen, like what does that mean? And can you steal an image of a person when they're not looking? And what does it mean to be a responsible documentarian and a responsible artist? And so I started playing with these images and I, uh, I didn't want to cut the actual glass slides, so I started scanning them at high resolution and playing with them and uh, printing them back out on different kinds of clear surfaces and then stacking them up. So I would cut out these images so some parts of the image are missing and that part is is clear. You see right through it and then you see the next one behind it and the next one behind it. So in this way, I sort of did a physical version of like Photoshop layers yeah. <laughs> of, you know, the women in China being photographed, the women in the galleries being photographed, and then the subject matter in the gallery. So then some of the frames 
of the you know massive paintings. You were almost are re- cut almost out. like rebuilding the space. Yeah. Well, I'm rebuilding, and I'm and I'm hoping that when people see these things, cram, you know, sort of crammed into the space, or if you look at it from a certain angle, it all registers. But you can walk around it, or mm-hmm. you can look at it at the wrong angle and see only one of these three or four images at a time. Uh, and I love doing this, and it's something that I've done for a while. Um, I have a series of lithographs. Actually, they're they're up, up there. Oh yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. Some stuff is being stored <laughs> in here. Uh, so those are like hand printed lithographs that are video stills, but they're stacked up. You mm-hmm. know, like a CMYK image, right. each color on a different, so that you it kind of forces the viewer to physically move their body a little bit if they want to engage with the work. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that everybody chooses to engage with the work, but most people do. Like, we'll stand and kind of wiggle around until they see everything yeah. register, but, and then there's some satisfaction. There's like a little mini reward in that, I think. So for those of you who can't see what we're talking about, which is all of you listening, uh, they kind of look, they, they have that kind of a um, 3D movie look without the glasses on in the old 3D movies. Sure. A little bit. Yeah. Right. There's yes, a, because when the, when images regist- are not registered. Misregistered colors. Yeah. Right. When images, yeah. if you look at something from an oblique angle and it's not registered, you get to see multiple outlines. You get to see right. multiple versions of the image repeating. Yeah. Which could be, you know, maybe some people like that because trippy or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't only uh, just teach and make art. You have a whole consulting uh, side gig, right? Oh, well, that's part of always being, you know, not saying no to things. So. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, um, yeah. But you'll, I, you'll visit institutions and, and help them kind of get up to speed on, yes. on the tools that they've probably invested in, but don't really have someone who can really utilize them or teach them. Right. And that can be, that can be any technological tool, although... More recently, it's uh, the majority of people who ask for my help are because they got really excited and fundraised for a 3D printer (laughs) and then they bought it and then nobody took it out of the box. Yeah, I think I think and and there are going to be a lot of uh, people who work at uh, uh, educational institutions who can relate to this. You you know, you you knew that if you said makerspace and 3D printer and uh, interdisciplinary arts, you were going to get some money to do something. <laughs> sure, that's the... <laughs> and a lot those, of people did it. Hot, hot, that's the hot... Uh, those are the hot keywords right, right. now. Yeah, <laughs> there's like a bingo. You could achieve right. bingo if you get all those words. <laughs> people, you know, so people want access. They know that there's something that has something to do with innovation. They don't, have, they don't have a plan. They don't have a curriculum. They're also... And this is, you know... This is all new tools, right? Yeah. Uh, all students or other people, they get a little afraid of the new tool. Like, well, I don't know. I've never touched one of those. And it can be whatever. It could be like a pencil that's really, really sharp. Or it could be a <laughs> welder or a sewing machine or a 3D printer or type of computer software. It could be, you know, a CNC machine, whatever it is. It could yeah. be anything. And uh, I feel... Um, I feel like I have done my share of handholding and, you know, <laughs> helping people understand how to link it to what they want to do. Uh, and it's pretty, it's been satisfying so far to be able to help people integrate things into their existing workflow and to not like overburden one person, because that's also the fear. Yeah. If I'm the person who cuts the tape on this box, right. <laughs> then everybody comes to me and says, give me an object that came out of that printer, and then I'll never leave work. Right? Oh, yeah, right. So <laughs> you become the, uh, if you if you sh- try to be the 
pro, uh, promoter of something or the proponent for getting something done, you also often end up being the person in charge of that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's back to that committee work thing. Right. right? That, that's a part of that. I have an idea. Good. Run with it. <laughs> it's like, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I got to, I, as part of this, I ended up um, sort of pitching this as an idea to the Shark Tank Sharks uh Robert Hershevik and Barbara Corcoran. Mm-hmm. And when the cameras were rolling, those guys were mean. <laughs> They're like mean and snarky. It's part of their yeah, shtick. Their shtick, yeah. And as soon as the cameras were off, when we're like repositioning things and changing lights, they were so sweet. <laughs> and Robert and I were talking about like Formula One racing, <laughs> what tracks have you driven on, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, Bar- and Barbara was like, I have a 3D printer in my office, but I'm afraid to take it out of the box. And I was like, that's it. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. And it could be anything. It could be like, I got a Cuisinart for making pasta, but I'm afraid <laughs> to put the attachment on the thing. Did, that, did that episode air? Were you actually? Yeah, I was on, uh, it, they were on Good Morning America. Oh, So I did okay. not go on the Shark Tank show. You did but that they on Good were, Morning America. But they came to Good Morning America as the sharks. Right. And the producer in the phone calls ahead of time had a really interesting way of like, you know, this is this is going to be about helping women get ahead in the workplace. And most women don't ask for raises. And how do you know the value of the thing that you're doing? And I was like, this is going to be a great conversation. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. (laughs) Because it was the day it was in the end of May or the beginning of June. And it was. The day that they that they cut the Roseanne Barr show, mm. so that's ABC. Oh, oh, oh! So that was the news. So that right. happened about thirty minutes before I walked into the building. They knew that that uh, three o'clock Eastern Standard Time they were going to have to f- figure out what was going on on the West Coast mm-hmm. for television that night because <laughs> it was supposed to that show was supposed to air like that day right and everybody was on the phone with a lawyer nobody knew like what was going on and our thing was so like inconsequential that Mm -hmm. like nobody really knew what was (laughs) (laughs) nobody knew what was happening (laughs) but somehow you know somehow it ended up uh turning out all right so if i wanted to it's sort of cheesy i could say like I'm a Shark Tank approved. <laughs> Shark Tank survivor. <laughs> Shark Tank survivor. But that's not, I mean, that's not really the, the conversation should just be like, how do you empower people to use tools? How do you help people not be afraid to try new things? And mm. I think that just goes back to the same conversation about experimentation. Yeah. Failure is valuable. It's okay if you fail. Mm. It's okay if you put the Cuisinart attachment on wrong and the dough <laughs> comes out of like the wrong spot because you could just do it again. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's OK. It's all right. Um, so I had some of my students this year build like that one over there. I built um, like two years ago, had them build a couple of 3D printers. You were printers. pointing to a 3D printer. I was pointing to. Yeah. In my. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just this, realized I'm, I'm sitting right next to your forbidden, and views, forbidden box. views There's a storage <laughs> uh, shelf with a lot of art. Yes. Some turntables, some paperwork, uh, 3D printer. <laughs> Some leather graphs. A little DV player up there. A little, yeah. oh yeah, mini DV. Yeah. Bum, bum. I still, yeah, I still have not switched everything that mm-hmm. I own over to digital, but I do have my most important VHSs have been switched to mini DV. Ah, so okay. I still have that last leg of the 
archival journey. Well, that oh. that is the that is what it means to be you know a user of technologies. You're gonna have a closet of obsolete technology or a or a cloud drive. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of files that still need to be switched to some future format that we don't know what exactly. It is yet. Yes. Yeah, Ameri- I used to be a member of American Moving Image Archivists, and it's just, you know, it's always been an issue, and the mm-hmm. formats change so quickly, and, yeah. you know, museums are now like, oh, we need we need Sony Trinitron monitors, <laughs> so we could show this video art that was made before there were LCD screens. Right. Uh, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a thing. Yeah, so. I remember just when, um, I guess just before Kodak went out of business, I went to a panel on how you're going to archive digital materials, right? Digi- your digital photographs, basically. And it w- I think there was, a, there was a Smithsonian representative there, and basically he said, shoot film. Just shoot film. <laughs> you can scan it, <laughs> you can digitize it, but you'll always have the film. A representative of Polaroid was telling you to use film? Smithsonian. Oh, of the Smithsonian, <laughs> <Yes>. okay. <laughs> like, well, hmm. no, I think Polaroid hmm. was gone by then. Or, yeah, I don't know, yeah. It's tough. It's really yeah. tough. I mean, we some of the older formats still work longer because we don't know what the longevity is no. of the formats that we've just developed. I have a bunch of very early digital work stored on the Kodak Gold CDRs because oh, that yeah. was going to be the, 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 best the answer. CDs. Right. Now you got to have like carry around a CD well, now I, drive. I, I had to you. buy an optical drive. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Boy, we keep uh, uh, tripping into back stone. to... Yeah, Why go right. to film? Just <laughs> etch it. <laughs> Take a, a giant coat outside. Go back to frescoes. Yeah, etch it in stone. <laughs> we should we should do yeah. something. We should take some like super digital like augmented reality or virtual reality piece mm-hmm. and be like, here's the stone version of it. Right. <laughs> Cut by digital tools into stone. <laughs> so the you know um um. One of the things I, I remember you doing and you you posted, I think you posted it quite a bit, was um, your amulets for introverts. Oh, yeah. That journey of going from like being a shy person to being an extrovert. Yeah. You had mentioned that before, that you, you went from being shy to being extroverted. Was that part of the process of... Wearing the amulets? Yeah. Well, I would sell more of them if I said yes. <laughs> But no, I was already an extrovert by the oh, time okay. I came up with this. You know what it was? It was, uh, I was working with a curator who I really enjoy working with, um, Asha Gampat, and she had all of these gashapon machines, which are like gumball machines. Oh. And she said, I want you to make an edition of something where, you know, it's going to come out of the gumball machine. Oh. And I was like, huh, what do I, what is, what is the value that has, something related to my work which is really you know my work is very much about physical places and landscapes but it's a maybe more about communities and um, social markers that you can see in landscapes so I was like well, so, well you know what's something social or community related that you could put in one of those capsules right mm-hmm. so I was playing with also the idea of uh, different styles of tessellation so ways that a round surface can be converted into uh, straight lines and flat planes oh okay uh, so that's what I mean by tessellation mm-hmm. and there's different algorithms for how you can achieve this you can do it by hand um, but you can also mathematically try and figure out what's you know what is a 
what are different ways that you can do this? And I found one algorithm that I really liked and I was using it to create different versions of eggs because I'm a lady and I've been thinking about <laughs> ovaries a lot. And I was like, the oves, you know, and I was also thinking about bravery and social bravery. And people are always saying like, do you have the cojones? Mm. And I was like, but those are eggs. <laughs> those are, you know, for either gender, just sort of mm-hmm. where they are, but they're right. in your body. Everybody has these sort of, you know, the gonads or mm-hmm. uh, both genders have some form of this. And, and what if, what if the, when we told people to buck up and be brave, what if we used the term, like, what if we were talking about ovaries more than we talk about uh, cojones, male cojones, <laughs> right? So, so I was like, oh, eggs. You know, if everybody had the, you know, the egg, the magic egg and the algorithm that I liked the most is this sort of Italian mathematician Veronoi. And it just has a way of there's something about it that it's mathy, but it still looks organic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was making these little eggs and then playing with the 3D printing process. And I realized I could put stuff in them while they're printing. So I started sneaking in little things that were kind of, you know, had witchy associations of, you know, magic or witchcraft or symbolism tied to the earth. So so there's, you know, pieces of shell have one type of meaning and tiger's eyes, like you know, this type of stone. And it looks a certain way, but it also has this name and is associated with like really raw, like aggression or confidence. And then I had... Uh, a couple, I had only two that I put fragments of my own baby teeth in. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's either going to really attract people to want to spend money on this machine. To try to get those. Or, or repel them, yes. right? Or they'll be like, oh, no, how horrible. I got Did you have to ask your mother teeth. for your baby's teeth? Or? So I have them. And oh. I have them already. And when my mother found out that I was using, she was like, well, how could you do that? How could you use? And I was like, you know, they're sitting in a drawer. They're not doing anything. And then that still save your children's baby teeth. Is it? So do I save my children's teeth? Of course not, Michael. The tooth fairy takes them. (laughs) Why would you ask a question like that? (laughs) I was not thinking, and I have my own. child to think about of course the tooth fairy takes them um but the tooth fairy might also leave them boy this uh, is really go down a hole yeah we're going down a rabbit hole my son wrote a long letter to the tooth fairy saying that he wanted the money but he also wanted to keep his tooth there you go there and it worked so did did anyone get the uh amulet with the your teeth in them no not out of the gumball machine but Uh, a couple people like, you know, saw them on Instagram and requested to buy them off wow. of Instagram. How did which, that make you feel? Um, well, I entered into a sort of like immediacy commerce situation that I've never been part of before, which mm. is like selling something on Instagram. <laughs> it involves Venmo and sort of immediate gratification and yeah. and young people, right? That's <laughs> sort of the formula. <laughs> but the request was for the one with baby teeth. And I said, the real baby teeth one is this amount of money. Mm-hmm. But you can have one with faux baby teeth. And they opted for the faux. Really? Because in their price range. So yeah. interesting. So now I have faux baby teeth, 
which involves looking for things that very closely resemble actual baby teeth but are not <laughs> my baby teeth. <laughs> like pieces of shells and things? Yeah, gravel. Gravel, really okay. good, But really right. good gravel that looks right. like a baby tooth. Do, I mean, you Do they express why they spend wanted? Spend time on the beach. Well, because that one is associated with like getting your lost youth back. Oh, okay. You know, like right, sort right. of youthful well, you, you, invigoration. You you talk about these as having uh, inherent superpowers, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think if you, um, placebos work, right? I'm not saying that mm-hmm. I know enough about witchcraft to actually give them magic. But, but the idea that you have um, something that you can talk about in a stressful social situation where you reach out and you ask somebody an intimate question or you even approach a stranger to begin with because you're wearing the necklace and the necklace made you do it. Mm-hmm. That gives people like a crutch. It's a social crutch. It's it's a more predictable social crutch than alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is one of my favorite social crutches. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's uh, and definitely more more predictable than drugs these days Mm -hmm. where you don't really know or any days I guess you don't really it's a a crapshoot so but this yeah this idea of uh so I don't know I mean it's it's a pretty uh it's a little bit of a deviation from my normal work which is about narrative it's about conversations but a lot of my work is about getting people to talk to each other who wouldn't normally talk to each other Mm. so I had I was in a a show at a gallery in Newark, Gallery of Pharaoh, and I was asked to, I was, the show was called Case Logic, and I was given a really attractive display case that was from, oh, where were the display cases from? Half of them were from the Metropolitan Museum and the other half were from the New York Historical Society. It, was that in reference to the company that made all the cases no. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that like. Do you put remember your that CDs case logic? Yeah. It's like for tapes and CDs yeah, and put everything. Yeah, your CDs oh, in okay. here. Oh. Your CD backpack. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> your sun visor CD. <laughs> yes, that's CD right. Case. Yeah, and then it would it, case, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. heat up, and then they'd all fall out in your lap <laughs> yes. when you put the sun visor down. The raining CDs. Dilla distracting. Okay, while you're it wasn't that. Sorry. No. Yes. So I had this display case, and they said, you know. Put, make something for the display case. And I thought like, okay, you know, I've been, I had a studio um, with this gallery for a while as like a studio resident. And, and I really, I respect a lot what the gallery is uh, trying to do, which is to make an open, really community centric mm-hmm. space instead of being sort of like a space predator, you know, coming in and being like, this space is so cheap. We'll use right. it to expand our Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> our, you know, and and not old Brooklyn, but like a specific, you know, yeah. is it gentrification. So uh, so it's this uh, anti-gentrification community space that is, I think, extremely successful in what they do. And I said, okay, what, you know, what's something that would be like a little bit scary for me, but also interesting. How can I stretch, use this to stretch my own experiences a little bit? And so I spent, uh, I marked out a couple of days that I would be outside on the sidewalk. I had a giant sandwich board, maybe six feet tall made that had an image of the case and a description of it. And I put that up on an easel and I had a, a couple of, of cameras uh, DSLRs and tripods and micro- nice microphones and um, people would walk down the street and I would try and 
stop them and, <laughs> and talk to them. I had them like sign waivers and fill out contact information. And then I would also give them an invitation to the exhibition. I would, oh. But I was asking them, I, was, I would say, we're standing in front of a gallery. This display case is going to be in the gallery. What is something that you feel should be in the display case? Oh, What's something okay. that you value, something that needs to be protected, something that you want to elevate? Because these are things that display cases do. And instead of me deciding what was in there, all of these people would tell me what it was. I would record them. I would write down all their information and their description of this. And then it was like, it's like a flux of style assignment. Then right. I had to go make the thing. Oh. <laughs> so I would 3D model the thing and, uh, and I was presenting it in the case as a hologram. So it's there, but not there. It's sort of ghost ghosty mm -hmm. and the only physical object in the case is an accession tag that just says rare object oh wow newark right <laughs> with the year right well how were you so, making it holographic like were, were you projecting things or? yeah so i was using um should i tell all my secrets this you should i have be to coy? should i be coy no <laughs> no, no, no. Right. it's fine it's fine <laughs> the market can handle it um <laughs> i used 19th century illusion called Pepper's Ghost. Hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this, no. but you take a pane of glass, you need to be in a darkened space and all the surfaces need to be black, preferably velvet, you mm. know, not shiny, light absorbing. You, you take a piece of glass and you put it at a 45 degree angle and then you have an image of something that's lit. Oh. It used to be lit by a candle or a mm -hmm. lantern and the image is reflected in the glass. The viewer sees the image they don't see the glass at the 45 right. degree angle. They see the image floating in space. Uh -huh. It's one of these like ghost seance -y yes. kinds of illusions. So I p had all of these objects. You know, I had a, a very small monitor inside the case that you can't see that's reflecting, the image is reflected. Right. So you see through the image to the tag below so that you know that you're seeing through the image. Mm -hmm. It's like a confirmation that, that, it's, is, that right. it's translucent, right. that you can see through it. So then I had to model, but it was t it was like a tight deadline. So I thought no one would want to talk to me. <laughs> so I thought I wouldn't have to make very many things. <laughs> and um, socially, I was more successful than I thought I would be. And I, had to I talked to a lot of people. And after the first day, I told my assistants, like, oh, my God, we have to stop. Yeah. We can't come back tomorrow because I have to make 40 <laughs> things in 30 days. Wow. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And it was amazing because People's suggestions were so great. Like, what were some of them? Yeah. Uh, one guy said like the rhino, a rhino, the white rhino. I think it had just was, you know, the concern about it having just gone extinct. Or right. Was that the black rhino? I can't remember. But and just I mean the rhinoceros. Somebody else said like, I want to see more flowers. You know, they pointed to the to the street. You know, I'm, I'm on uh, Market Street. <laughs> in Newark, like between uh, Broad and University. Sure. So people are gesturing to the street and be like, I want to see more flowers. I want to see beautiful women. I want to see children holding hands. Like, so some people had sort of like a utopia vision of, yeah. you know, what should be valued right now. And other people had really sort of like practical, like one guy was like, money. Hmm. He said, what's a value? Money. money. I want to see money in the case. So I was right like, all to right, the source. here we go. Right. Like dollar bills and like stacks of gold coins. And, <laughs> and, um, and some people had abstract ideas like, oh, I want to see love. And I was like, okay, what color is it? Mm. How big is it? 
is it geometric? Is it, you know, is it round? Does it mm-hmm. have hard edges? What does love look like? So some things I had to sort of invent and other things were really specific. Like I want to see more women like Madam C.J. Walker, right? So then I used like the image from her famous hair cream oh. and extruded it. So it's like a Madam C.J. Walker coin wow. and it revolves in the air. And because to model the person, I was like, I don't know if I can yeah, do that in, in the time, time that I have. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it was really, it was really wonderful, and it was this dialogue. So it was sort of what the what the amulet's supposed to do, right? It gave me an excuse to stand on the street and talk to people who I would be afraid. You know, it's hard talking to strangers. Mm-hmm. You know, especially especially in Newark, where you know people want to size you up and they want to know like, why do you want to talk to me? Are are you being predatory? Are you taking advantage? Mm-hmm. And I had, are um, you a real estate developer? Are yeah, absolutely. Are you a developer? <laughs> yeah. yes. Who the heck are you? Yeah. <laughs> what should we do with you? <laughs> Kick you to the curb. So it was, and it was a really nice way to have this dialogue. So many people got it right away and they were like, Oh, what do I value? I want to see, uh, I want to see this neighborhood valued. Mm. I want to. I don't want to see any more abandoned buildings. I want to see all local owned businesses. I want to see right. And so one of the things I had to show was gentrification and ungentrification. Wow! It's like this animation. I had to build like a whole two city blocks and like make them change and then change again. So that was in an, in that, an animation in the case. Yes, that wow. was one of the holograms. Mm. But it was, you know, the experience of doing this with people and the exhibition space, like, you know, I didn't, I included stills from the videos, but I'm still working on how to work the video because the videos are, I think, more important. The interviews have become more important than the objects in the case. The objects in the case are just a metaphor for like, or, or the tool for getting people to talk about this. So I've been playing a little bit with, you know, what would, a, what would a VR experience be where you're looking at the case, but if you turn around, all the people are behind you and they're telling you what should be there and why and what's important to them. In a kind of them. augmented reality way? Yeah, in a VR way. Like I'm imagining mm-hmm. like, you know, a headset. Yeah. A headset in a gallery. Oh, okay. And then you like turn around and see people behind you. Yeah. Uh, it, could be, it could be AR. Did it's you a little play? harder to do that. Yeah. Did you play the, uh, the audio while people were looking at the case? Was that no. part? Oh, okay. No, I yeah. just had, um, I had some text. So I had each mm. person's name and the name of the thing that they at- requested after it was shown. Um, and then I gave everybody an invitation to the show and said like, please come bring your friends. You are now part of the artwork. Mm-hmm. You, are one of the co- you are one of the co-authors or collaborators on the artwork, which I think is, it's important to, for me to collaborate occasionally and, and to sometimes just like, all right, if I have this opportunity or I have a little bit of power or leverage, how what's a what's a responsible way to share it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how how do I do that instead Especially of- the the it's keeping in in line with what Gallery Alfaro is trying to do, right? In being a community respect, oriented space. Yeah, because I respect what they're what they're doing so much and I think it's so successful. So mm-hmm. that's not that is certainly not the place to to go just show some <laughs> solipsistic work that's it's not for right, Damien self-contained, Hurst. right? It's not, that's not, that's yeah. not for that kind of, you know, mm-hmm. 
uh, Matthew Barney. I might be the only person who loves Matthew Barney's work. <laughs> I actually love it, but that's not the place for for it. That's right. not the place for that kind of work. That's you know. Mm-hmm. Here's a story about why I'm really important. <laughs> yeah, you know. So you've mentioned uh, going from uh, being an introvert to being an extrovert, and this may not have anything to do with that, but it's it's the best transition I've had today to ask you about your background and where you grew up. I grew up in upstate New York mm-hmm. um, in a small town called Clifton Park which mm. is halfway between Albany and Saratoga. Yeah. And what did your folks do? Uh, my dad worked for the uh, for the state, and he developed a program to help older drivers or to help families evaluate older drivers if oh. they should be driving. And then it became like this thing where he went touring nationally and internationally what, talking about like, what field is that like what, what did he study what was like <laughs> uh new york state office for the aging oh okay so but what, like, a, like what was his sort of degree like what was his education what how did he get into that self-taught race car driver wow yeah yeah because you you <laughs> you mentioned that you grew up uh, under a car basically or in oh, a garage sure. right yeah no really under my dad's car it was always on jacks and uh-huh. and he'd be like you know if i wanted to hang out with him i had to get on the creeper and like whoop oh. slide under and, and then it was like this whole world of it's a little bit harder now cuz so many of the computer things on mm-hmm. cars are almost inaccessible. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. No, no. We, but I, it used to be this, this conversation like, with someone about how I used to work on cars. Right. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you could. A person could work on their own yeah, yeah. car. And, uh, and so that was my introduction to probably like in some ways art because it was about like the physical properties of materials Mm -hmm. and knowing that something that looks complex and impenetrable can actually come apart into smaller understandable mechanical pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, So that made me not afraid of all the other stuff, sculpture and computers and whatever. Right. Well, you mentioned you, you you refer to yourself as a tinkerer quite a bit. mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so he, so he had an interest in cars and racing, and, and that led to this designing a program that could evaluate older drivers. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And, my, and my mother, she went back to school. My parents separated, and my mom went back to school and finished her undergraduate degree and got a master's degree and all this while sort of like single parenting. So you lived and with your mother. So Yeah. And uh, I mean, my dad was always nearby. Mm-hmm. We'd still hang out with him. But, but yeah, lived with my mom and... And she had this, you know, she has the Irish gift of storytelling. Oh, yes. And she's, that is a gift. And she's a brilliant yeah. writer. And so, you know, narrative and storytelling is is a huge part of mm-hmm. my process. And I feel like very obviously that comes from her and from just the uh, the sort of wonderful place of theater that when we'd be at a family gathering and then it was time to tell the stories she could spin a yarn oh yeah (laughs) no it's like um you know so she's very sort of worldly and and has had a lot of amazing experiences and and is a good storyteller and and also has always been politically involved Mm. socially involved and so i sort of i got that you know these are the things that you kinds of things you can get from your parents or from your peers or whatever. But I Did you grow up with siblings? Yeah, I have a younger brother. He's six years younger than mm-hmm. I am. And I was uh, I was teaching, I was in grad school at SVA and I was teaching like a little seminar on special effects stuff with After Effects software, video, special effects. And then I 
he and I were talking about it and I showed him a couple of tricks and he said, oh, this is amazing. He had gone to SUNY New Paltz for graphic design and he liked his graphic design classes, but I think he was in college for a long time. He wasn't mm. really enjoying college. It wasn't his thing. And then he spent a summer in his friend's parents' basement teaching himself After Effects and Cinema 4D and a couple other you know pieces of software. And he said, I, I want to do like movie intros. Mm. I was like, that's pretty specific for an unemployed person, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what he does. He's very wow. he's very well known for it and that's oh. his that's his career. So and and special effects. He does like a certain kind of special effect. So doing production work on intros? If you've seen a move if you've seen a Marvel movie. Yeah. So the new animated Marvel logo sure. is his design. Holy cow. Yeah. So he's like and there's certain kinds of special effects. So the, he does the flip book style and uh, Marvel that's Animation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. That's pretty well known. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a beautiful one in uh, the intro to uh, Captain Marvel was a, a tribute to Stan Lee, which I thought was really nicely done. Yeah. I'm nodding, but... You haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. <laughs> no, I don't get as much time to see movies as I'd like. So I get the sort of behind the scenes view mm-hmm. from my brother of like right. the production schedule and all, you know things right. like that but i don't so you the, know i don't get i and i don't uh, i don't get to see any of the and yeah. stuff it's very tightly controlled by disney so i would never get to see any oh, of yeah. this stuff no you no, it, no they keep the lid on everything out. until it's out but yeah, I, i'm sure you know, he has to I hear sign all kinds process. of ndas oh absolutely yeah, yeah, i think yeah. they have like um, closed circuit video cameras everywhere yep. so that the employees can be monitored. Yeah, and, <laughs> so that nobody some, sees something. And the actors in production. come in in disguises sometimes. I've heard to sets and studios. Ooh, I didn't yeah. know about that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So we're both. You know, he and I are maybe like two. We've had these experiences. We're two sides of a really similar yeah. coin, and mine is more experimental, and his is mm-hmm. more commercial. And I think our family gets really frustrated because when we get together, we just want to talk shop and everybody yeah. else is like, oh, I roll. <laughs> well, when you say but, family, you mean extended family? I mean, oh, yeah. your parents must be no, accustomed they're, to... No, they're totally... Parents are right. cool with it and they're wonderfully supportive, proud yeah. parents. I mean, they sent two kids to art school. That's what I was going to say. That's a huge risk it's, it's right there. Very, uh, right? Uh, Not every parent Non-traditional, is uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, oh, you want to go to art school There's, too? There are no Crossing doctors fingers. or lawyers in your family. Right, right? <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> it's like, maybe one of them will make it. Yeah. So but we so Do you, we do you trace it. these whole introverted idea to any sort of point or particular, you know, uh, thing in your life or, or you know. Any, you want to talk about junior high? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing bad happened in junior high. Okay. Everything was fine. <laughs> what, no, but, I think I think a lot of people grow up feeling um, like they don't know socially what to do with themselves and then one day they figure it out and some people figure it out earlier than others and i figured it out when i went to college probably yeah i think i figured it out much later than that yes yeah (laughs) but it's a nice thing when you realize the the sort of power that you have in not falling into social traps or tropes of you know Mm -hmm. what how people should be and then there's a lot of power when you uh, become a confident person and can like hold out your hand to somebody else who's fearful or right doesn't feel like they have a voice in some way and you say like try this or try this or yeah. you know I'll i think be, that's the the yeah. attractiveness of teaching right yeah 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, and there's a perform there's a performative <laughs> aspect. Oh, absolutely. Hundred percent. Yes, well. yes. <laughs> but stories are a really big deal for me and I'm trying to figure out in my work right now, um, you know, I have a lot of really good stories that that I will tell at, you know, openings or on podcasts or something about <laughs> Th- you know, sort of things that happened while I was making work or how did the work get made? And the stories are really, I think, interesting and en- engaging, but I haven't included them formally mm. in the work because that's like a sit down video that you have to watch mm-hmm. or it's um, a book that you have to really like sit down and read this sort of, but I, I do love performative storytelling and theater and things like that and I I participated in one of like Miranda July's things she had a website uh for a while it was called learning to love you more I hmm. think um where she'd give people assignments and then they'd upload the assignments that they did really and I just figured like oh it's just a repository nobody ever reads right. it but I was I exhibited a a video piece and somebody was looking to buy the piece I didn't find my website, but they found, or maybe I didn't have a website yet. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and, uh, but they found me on through Miranda July and like got in touch with her. And she was like, okay, here's the contact information I have for her. So, I'm, but I'm trying to figure out how to put that in my work. Your work, right. And I was uh, meeting, I was in Boston. My husband, Tony, is a musician and he was playing a, an awesome show, a and, sold out show. And it is in interesting. You've always had. An interest in, in your work, you've, you've always had an interest in the audio and the sound quality and, and space, right? I remember yeah. you working on the with Anibal Pella, the water tower yes, sound we, project, yeah, we right? Did sound recordings yeah. inside of an abandoned water tower. Yeah, 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 it was amazing. And and I worked with, um, I did a residency at Engine Twenty One, which was mm. a space where all of these uh, speakers it was like thirty six speakers massive speakers yeah um were hand built by an engineer who just liked building uh-huh. unique speakers right and then you could sort of control where the sound went and to which speakers at what time mm. through a software called max chitter msp and the software engineer working at engine 21 was this young guy who was was he getting his phd in columbia university in like musicology but he was really good at programming uh, the software. And he was assigned to me as an engineer. And it was Luc Dubois, who's <laughs> really, his work is really well known. And <laughs> and he's sort of, but he uses the software to do different things. You know, his work is sort of based on this software. Yeah. Much of it uses this software. But he was my engineer. And so he helped me program all these speakers for this space and have sound that moved around. And the sound was you know, environmental, sort of landscape-based. It was trees falling, so it was sort of like macro-micro. And the sounds that monarch butterflies make to communicate to each other wow. with their wings. <laughs> so if you had a parabolic microphone yes. and you could record <laughs> monarch butterflies, you would hear this sound that they make. And it was at the same time that I was also making these other videos about different insects, and I was raising butterflies in my kitchen in Hoboken and it was like this whole like uh you know nerdy nature techno nature situation um the organic the inorganic that's a theme in your work yes definitely and I so I you know and I've I've been fortunate enough that through some of my interests I've been able to work on and off with different 
scientists. I work with an entomologist for that series of work, and which was sort of like an interactive object where you touch a case and insects respond to you. But you, I, I cut you off a little bit. You were talking about Tony and music. and Oh, yeah. We yeah. went to Boston. He did this great, amazing show with his band, The Beatings. They're very cool. iTunes, people. Six albums. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, maybe, that, maybe iTunes is closing their store. I don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, no, they just announced a whole change yeah. to their model. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, <laughs> Apple. Get it together. So... So I went out for his show, but it was like a whole weekend of like the band practicing a couple more times and doing their, moving their equipment around and doing whatever. And I had just met a couple of artists, uh, Caitlin and Misha, and they're based in Boston. They said, if you're ever in Boston, and I said, well, coming in two weeks for this show. So we were having dinner and they were like, the stories, your stories are great. What are you going to do with your stories? So they started talking more about other artists beyond Miranda July who you know, have this way of you come to the museum space, but then they they an artist will do a walkthrough or there's other ways to be performative. So I talked to a colleague of mine who has a performance space in Suffern, which is the next town over. And she said, oh, you should experiment, you know, try and see if can you tell your stories formally in front of an audience. She said, come to uh, come to the open mic. It was like serious comedy people. <laughs> so I show up. <laughs> I showed up at the, this is aging people. This is my midlife crisis. I'm just facing my fears one at a time. I went to this open mic and I have to say like sitting in the audience for an open mic waiting to go on stage is a little bit of a gut churning experience. Oh, it must be. Were you yeah. sweating? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, I had to like, uh, somebody came and said like, okay, you're going to be up next. And I was like, Ooh, I have to use the ladies room. <laughs> My goodness. This is, this is a little stressful. Uh, but I got on stage and I haven't, you know, I haven't performed on stage before. So it's like lights are in your, you can't, you can't see the audience. Oh, I didn't think of that. Mm. And I'm really used to like telling stories to people. So I was like, oh my God, I'm staring into these bright lights and my voice sounds too loud in the microphone. And so I figured it out. Uh, and I think it, I think it went well. I don't know. You'd have to ask so the audience. You told members. stories and they were, they were humorous stories. Yes. Or, I mean, I'm not sure what was, <laughs> what's going on here. You, you went well, to a comedy club. I went to a comedy club oh, okay. to disappoint the audience <laughs> by telling stories instead of jokes. <laughs> that, but no, it but was all okay. right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, uh, comedians tell sort of long form kind of story jokes right now right yeah. so I had and a f- very personal right so I had yeah. a personal funny story that was about like jujitsu and I told the story and at one point I realized like oh god there's no women in the audience oh the audience is all the other male comics who have been <laughs> waiting else. to perfect their act <laughs> and at one point I was like jujitsu is hard because you're in a room full of men Kind of like now. <laughs> uh, yeah, you feel alone, just like this. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, I think people laughed at the right point, at the right parts. Oh, good. And uh, they obviously didn't need to be polite because half of them were on their phones. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> they're just waiting to like perfect to go their up. own right, shit. Right, right, so, right. You know, some of them were like real, you know, mm-hmm. do this for a career kind of comics, like like they had tight sort of material it was pretty cool (laughs) so i don't know i don't know what the answer is 
I think probably open mics are not the answer. Right. <laughs> I did tell a story at the moth once, the, the moth story sure. slam. Yeah. And uh, that went horribly. Oh. Because, because the first the stories were about fire. Well, I had met somebody who was part of the moth mm -hmm. organization when I was on Fire Island. And I told her a story. She said, and then she revealed, I do the moth. I am this person. And you, our next one is in two weeks. And you should come. And I'll make sure that the theme is fire. So you can tell your fire story. It was a funny story about fire. And... <laughs> But they pick names out of a hat. So the person who went first was a firefighter who told oh. a story about a child who died oh, no. in a fire because he hid because he was afraid of the firefighter's oh, mask and everything. Oh, you had to follow that? So I was sobbing oh, when yeah. I went on stage and they were like, Anne Lepore with a funny story about fire. And I was like, oh, no. okay, guys. <laughs> here's my story it was i mean it was just couldn't have been more wrong yes yeah no so that didn't work you will yeah. not hear that on the moth radio app. right it they, didn't work out they were ready to take the cane the vaudeville cane yes, and like pull me playing off you off with music yeah goodbye <laughs> right. yeah oh that's pretty uh, unfortunate yes but that's okay i mean but you were right this is part of that the yeah. failure experiment you were getting totally into okay you were sort of working towards um how you were going to work stories into your artwork Right. Yeah, and I still don't know. Oh, I, and okay. I, and I think I think like VR and AR and volumetric filmmaking mm -hmm. could be opportunities for getting somebody to be in a space or having them stand. You know, the way this other work that I make, you have to stand in a certain place right. and it registers. Then maybe you have to stand in a certain place in order to hear mm -hmm. a story or a part of a story. And if you stand in a different place, you hear something else. Oh, interesting. right. So this is yeah, a, these yeah. are some of the yeah. ideas that are in in process. Right. Was it you, you had, uh, mentioned you know your, this whole the how this uh, the Boston and the comedy club and all that got going with uh, your husband Tony, who's a musician. Mm -hmm. Did the music that did, did you did you meet him? Did you through your art? Was it a sound artwork thing or? Did, was that just that coincidence? Would be great. No, oh. <laughs> it's an online dating website. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was done with it. I was like, this is horrible. Oh, so okay. many first dates. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a neighbor of mine, uh, he was like, oh, you're shutting down your account? He's like, can I come cruise the guys on your account? I'm bringing champagne. That's <laughs> <laughs> right before New Year's. So we're like drinking champagne. And I just gave him the laptop. And he was like, what about this guy? He's cute. And I was like, wait, I, d I didn't see that one. And he's like, oh, I'm going to delete it since you wanted to delete your account. And I was like, no. Oh. Wait. The one, one last, one last try, one last try. And it was, you know, this really amazing person who I connected with immediately. Oh, all right. But you know, when you're on a second date and somebody says, uh, I'm in a band. Yeah. What are the chances that you're actually going to like the music? Right? Not good. Totally love no. it. It's amazing. He's very talented. It's like telling someone you're a stand-up comic. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, good for you. Come see my aunt. I wonder if I'll enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. So so it was a great, just a great match. And yeah. uh, and a supportive partner. Like, as you know, when you're a creative person, you need to have some a supportive partner who understands... Your the, schedule? The intense, <laughs> intense amount of time mm -hmm. that it takes to have a creative practice. And, you know, to be wild and wacky and to have a couple of kids... 
and have a creative practice. Yes. That's like a whole, you could have a whole radio show that's just about that. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yes. Children well, we, we've and had creative that, parents. We've had the conversation quite a bit. Yeah. Parents as artists. Yes. And there's a group that I absolutely adore. It's Artist Residency in Motherhood. Oh, wow. And it's a group of women who just sort of support each other in the chaos of when the when their children are very young. Oh, yeah. Like the first year mm -hmm. and how devastating that could potentially be to a practice. I was worried. I was really worried when I was pregnant. I thought like, oh, I'm never going to make, what mm. if I never make work again? So I made a ton of commitments. So when my son was like a tiny infant and I'm wearing him on one of those, you know, baby carriers yeah. on my chest i was also like lugging turntables and and uh practicing oh that that was some performative work i did mm -hmm. some performative like turntable work and uh doing all these things with a baby because i had met um these artists tally and kyle they're part of a duo called lovid and when i met them the first time i saw them perform it was at the kitchen and they were performing on this like digital music video table that they built this musical interactive musical instrument and they had a baby in a baby carrier and they would just depending on how each of them needed to <laughs> they would just move the baby like here you put the baby yeah. you wear the baby carrier i'm gonna and it was like seamless it happened during their this you know amazing performance at the kitchen you know packed audience and so it, for me it legitimized yeah, like you okay, saw a way that it could be done. People do this. Yeah, yeah, could totally do this. So yeah. I overcommitted a little bit. Yeah. I had, <laughs> I think I had a new exhibition every month for the first year <laughs> of my child's life, and it was exhausting. <laughs> but I was able to prove it to myself that, like, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've mentioned this before. There's a a bunch of photographs of the Mars Canal where my camera is actually sitting on Mateo's head in the baby <laughs> carrier. <laughs> Does he have like a spot? That's right. Is there a dent? I think. <laughs> You can see the name of the camera if you look closely. <laughs> but yes, oh, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your project. I really, I've listened to a lot of episodes and I think it's amazing. Well, so thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.